It's the city of Munich in 1931. A young expat from Britain is driving his brand new red Fiat through the streets of the city. He's 19 years old. And he and his passenger are just enjoying a beautiful day driving through the streets of this German town. At the same time, an artist turned soldier turned politician is also walking the streets of Berlin. He's 42 years old. And as the 19-year-old is ripping around in his red sports car, this 42-year-old politician steps out to cross the street, and the 19-year-old hits the 42-year-old with his car. Thankfully, uh, there were no fatalities. Thankfully, the injuries weren't too serious. The 42-year-old politician just sort of dusted himself off, and apologies were exchanged, and they both went on their way. For multiple years after that point, the 19-year-old, as he got older, wondered, what if I had just run that man right over? What if this had been a motor vehicle accident like so many other motor vehicle accidents where the person who is hit is actually killed? You see, that 42-year-old politician, he was well-known in Germany, but wasn't well-known throughout the rest of the world. But as time went on, the statement that the passenger made to the 19-year-old kind of haunted him. Because the passenger told him, you just hit Adolf Hitler with your car. What if Hitler had died that day in 1931? How would Germany have been different? How would Europe have been different? How would the world have been different? If one man had died. What a difference a death could make. We often think about the difference that a, a life makes, but a death can make a difference as well. We all die, every single one of us, but most of us think about the significance of our life, not the significance of our death. If Hitler were of to die, we would put that in the category of that's an evil man dying, so that's actually a good thing. But what about when a good man dies on Good Friday? As we read Matthew 27 today, we see that there is a great difference that a death can make. We've been going through the book of Genesis as a church family. If you're visiting here with us, my name's Ted. Pleased to meet you. So glad that you're here today. And as we've been going through the book of Genesis, we've been looking at sort of the origin story of the universe that explains everything, explains where the world came from, explains where life came from, and even explains where death came from. Death came 
because of sin. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And as we've been studying the book of Genesis, we've learned some things about Adam, the first human being, that he was created in the beginning, that he was created in God's image, that he was a man who tried to become like God. That's that's what the temptation was when he reached for the fruit, that he yielded to Satan's temptation and that he died at the ripe old age of 930. If you're visiting and don't understand, you can ask me in the foyer afterwards. This is what we learned from the first book of the Old Testament. The the Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And we see a number of parallels between Adam and Jesus. Adam was created in the beginning. Jesus was the creator in the beginning. Adam was created in God's image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Adam was a man who tried to become like God. Jesus was God who became man. Adam yielded to Satan's temptation. Jesus withstood Satan's temptation. And Adam died at 930. And Jesus died at 33. As far as religious leaders go... Jesus died very early. I mean, Muhammad lived almost twice as long. He died when he was 60. Buddha lived until he was 80. Even biblically speaking, Abraham and Moses lived well north of 100 years old. And yet Jesus died at 33. But what a difference a death makes. In Matthew 27, we learn about the agony of Jesus' death. But we also learn what he achieved through that agony. We learn about his pain, but we also can see that there is actually a a plan and a purpose that is being carried out. Matthew 27 reads like like a tragedy, And yet there are these little seeds, these subtle signals that this tragedy is actually going to result in triumph. So as we make our way through Matthew chapter 27 today, I want us to sort of stop and reflect four times. The first place I want us to stop and reflect is to think about the crown, the crown that Jesus War on the cross. As we pick up the story, uh, Jesus has already had the Last Supper with his disciples. Judas has betrayed him. Peter has denied him. He's cycled through the courtrooms of the Sanhedrin, Herod, and Pilate. He's been handed over to the soldiers and scourged. And then the soldiers aren't finished with him yet. In verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him. And put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put, on his clothes, and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The whole battalion, hundreds of soldiers encircling 
Jesus. They strip him, they put a red robe on him, a crown of thorns, they kneel before him, they call him the king of the Jews in mockery, but they spoke better than they knew because Jesus was the true king of the Jews. He was the true son of David, but he was much more than that. He was the king of all creation, the king of the cosmos, the king of kings and lord of lords. You see, when Jesus was standing there with the crown on his head, holding the the reed as a scepter and clothed in, in red, they were pointing out that he was the king. You see, Adam was supposed to be king. And Jesus here is standing where where Adam ought to be standing. Uh, In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and all of creation. Adam and Eve were created to have dominion. Dominions belong to kings and to queens. Adam was created to rule the world. But as we know, Adam took the fruit and Adam sinned. And rather than ruling the world, Adam ruined the world. And God told this to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The sign that the ground was cursed, the sign of the difficulty that was brought on all of creation because of Adam's sin, the sign were thorns. And the soldiers took this crown of thorns, not made out of gold that lasts in a fire, but but out of thorns that that are quickly burned up in a fire. It's kindling. And they pressed it down onto Jesus' head, thinking that they're mocking him, not realizing that Jesus here is symbolically saying, I am king of the curse. I am going to take the curse that is on all of creation. I'm going to take the curse that is on all of humanity because of Adam's sin. And I'm going to carry it to the cross. So he, the second place I want us to stop and pause then is the cross itself. Verse 31 says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put, his own, put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. Verse 32, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but he refused, but sorry, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. After the the journey from the governor's headquarters to the place of Golgotha, a journey that was too difficult. Jesus could not carry his cross. So Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene is a place in Africa. Simon came from Africa, most likely a a Jewish person living in Africa there to worship at a Passover. 
carries his cross. Jesus is exhausted. All of the blood loss, all of the anguish, the agony of the scourging and the beating. And then they offer him wine mixed with gall. Now, now, some biblical scholars think that this was like an act of mercy, that it was kind of like an anesthetic, like here, this will numb the, the pain as we crucify you. But I think what's really happening here is they're offering him wine that's not drinkable, wine that's poisonous, wine that is mixed with gall that it tastes so bitter you don't want to drink it. Imagine if I forced you to run 10 kilometers and then took a Gatorade bottle and filled it with windshield wiper fluid and said, are you thirsty after that big log run? Here, take a take a drink and you almost feel like you you need you just you want just want to put anything wet on your lips I, I think it was part of the torture Matthew in a very understated way in the middle of verse 35 simply says they crucified him the ESV study bible Uh, says that modern medical explanation for the cause of death on a cross have focused on either asphyxiation or shock. Crucifixion was widely believed to be the worst form of execution due to the excruciating pain and public shame. Hanging suspended by one's arms eventually caused great difficulty in breathing, which could be alleviated only by pushing up with one's feet to take the weight off the arms. But that motion itself would cause severe pain in the feet, arms, legs, and back, causing the exhausted victim to slump down again, only to be nearly unable to breathe once more. Eventually, the victim would succumb to suffocation if he had not already died as a result of the cumulative effect of the physical trauma inflicted on him. Consider his cross. Consider what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verse 13, where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He wore the crown of thorns, the symbol of the curse. But even the way that he died further emphasized that he is breaking that curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree which is quoting Deuteronomy 21, 23. Jesus was not, only, was not only showing that he was bearing the curse with the crown of thorns, but the very cross on which he died was a symbol of the curse. Then it says in verse 35 that they divided his garments. Matthew had already mentioned back in verse 28, that Jesus had been stripped once, and now they're dividing his garments, so his garments are no longer on him. Jesus has been stripped again. Jesus is naked and exposed on the cross. Again, just like Adam, when, when, when Adam had sinned, what was the first thing that he noticed? Genesis chapter 3 says the, the eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then even after sinful humanity is wiped out by the flood, Noah has this opportunity for a new start. And just like Adam took 
the fruit and sinned. Noah took the fruit and then fermented it and then sinned. And the same result, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard and he drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. The shame of nakedness is what Jesus bore for us on the cross as his garments were being divided, as they gambled for his clothing. Do you have things in your life that cause you to feel shame? Things that you have done or things that have been done to you, things that you have said or things that have been said to you, things that, even things that you have thought, that if they were to be uh, exposed, if they were to be publicly announced, that the, the shame that you would feel. Jesus died for that shame. Jesus was exposed and naked on the cross. Then they start mocking him. First, they over his head in verse 37, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. In verse 39, it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. In verse 37, they, they mock him because he's the king of the Jews. The, the irony is, is that he actually was the king of the Jews. In verse 40, they start mocking him because he was talking about the temple being destroyed and then in three days being rebuilt. And, and the irony is, is that Jesus was the true temple. What, what is the temple? The temple is the place where people go to meet God. Jesus is the true temple where people meet God. And the temple was being destroyed at that moment and three days later was going to be rebuilt or resurrected. And they, they mocked him by calling him the son of God and he was the son of God. <clears throat> As they're mocking, they're talking about saving others. He, he, he was doing a, the greatest act of salvation. All of these mockeries, each, each person, whether it be the crowds or the criminals or the religious leaders or the soldiers, they all spoke better than they knew. Even verse 43, he trusts in God. Let him now deliver him. He, he does trust in God and God will in fact deliver him. Consider his cross. Consider what he went through to pay the penalty for our sin and then consider his cry verse 45 now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying Eli Eli lama sabachthani that is my God my God why have you forsaken me a couple of things about timing here in the Roman world. You counted the hours of a day 
each hour after sunrise. So when it says the sixth hour, that's six hours after 6 a.m., which is 12 noon. When the sun is supposed to be highest in the sky, what do we have? We have darkness. Again, think back to Genesis. How, How did it all start? Darkness. Here we have Jesus who is the light of the world being crucified. It only makes sense that there would be darkness. In Mark 15, verse 25, we're told that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. That's three hours after 6 a.m. That's 9 a.m. And then we're told in verse 45 that now it's the ninth hour, which, be, which would be 3 p.m. So Jesus has been hanging on the cross, suffocating to death for the last six hours. And using what little breath he has left, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. As we've been going through Matthew chapter 27, we've been focusing primarily on parallels between Jesus and Adam. And that's something that Matthew wants us to recognize. But Matthew, as an author writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is also bringing in multiple other themes. There's a whole theme of the Passover and the lamb and sacrifice. And then there's, there's a, 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 another theme of King David, Jesus being called King of the Jews. And Jesus, in this moment of anguish, when he says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He's actually quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting a psalm. And it's, it's a psalm of David. It's a psalm written by, for, or about David. And and David went through some very difficult times, nothing like what Jesus went through, but the sufferings of David sort of set the tone for the suffering that Jesus would go through. And many of the things that we've read so far come right out of Psalm 22. They divided his garments among them. That's Psalm 22, 18. Wagging their heads is Psalm 22, 7. He trusts in God, let God deliver him. Psalm 22, 8. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first verse of Psalm 22. And as you keep reading Psalm 22, you realize, man, I know why Jesus is quoting this, this psalm because it goes on to say uh, things like this. I am poured out like water. You lay me in the dust of death. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. That's just one of the most incredible things about Old Testament. What would David have been thinking when he said they pierced my hand? We know Jesus is quoting this psalm. His hands and feet have literally been pierced. But hundreds of years earlier, it's prophesied in this psalm. But this psalm is not just a psalm of hopeless desperation. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We understand that there is, there is something going on within the Trinity. I mean, there is, there is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are three in one. There is one God. They're, they've never been separated from one another. And yet Jesus chooses at this moment as he's dying on the cross, as he's bearing the curse, as he's bearing the shame, and as he's taking on the wrath of God that all of us deserve for all of our sin, he chooses to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We know from from Habakkuk chapter two that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. And we also know from 2 Corinthians 5.21 that when Jesus went to the cross, he who knew no sin became sin. So something happened there. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happened in terms of the relationship between the father and the son. But the, the quotation that Jesus chooses to use here gives us an indication of what Christ was going through at that moment. But the psalm is not just a psalm of hopeless desperation. Like so many of the psalms, it takes a turn towards hope. The end of the psalm says, he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. When Jesus cried out on the cross, the father heard him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. He rules over the religious leaders who put Jesus on the cross. He rules over the Romans who put Jesus on the cross. So Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People misunderstand him in verse 47. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Elijah means uh, my God is the Lord. So if Jesus starts saying my God, my God, and Elijah is my God is the Lord, they thought maybe he's just using shorthand. I guess they didn't know their Bibles that well to know that he was quoting Psalm 22, they thought he was calling Elijah. There's all these superstitions. Elijah's a guy from the Old Testament who didn't die. He was sort of taken up to heaven. And there were all of these superstitions. Sometimes you'd have a meal, you'd have an extra chair for uh, Elijah in case he shows up or, or people would call on him at times of need. And so some of the people, they want to be merciful to Jesus. They see what he's going through, verse 48. And one of them, at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine, not wine mixed with gall. This is different. This is like everyday table wine. And put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And verse 49 says, but others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save. They're they're like, don't help him. If we help him, maybe Elijah won't come. And then in verse 50, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. In Greek and in Hebrew, the word for wind, spirit, and breath, it's all the, all the same word. So when it says Jesus yielded up his spirit, it's also that Jesus yielded up his breath. Again, in the book of Genesis, we have Adam who is given breath. He receives breath and becomes alive. And here in the Gospel of Matthew, we have Jesus who isn't given breath, but who gives his breath. He yielded up his breath. He yielded up his life and died. So we've looked at the crown. We've looked at the cross. We've looked at the cry. And lastly, let's look at the curtain. Verse 51 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and rocks were split. The curtain of the temple. Now, the, the temple was modeled after this tent called the tabernacle that the people of Israel uh, 
used as they were wandering through their wilderness from Egypt to the promised land. And the tabernacle was modeled after the Garden of Eden. As we've been going through the book of Genesis, we notice that in the Garden of Eden, there was, there was uh, multiple rivers, and then there's this basin of water and the tabernacle and the temple. And then there's the tree of life standing at the middle of the garden. And in, in the middle of the tabernacle and the temple, there's this lampstand with, with branches and flowers and leaves like, like a tree. And then in the Garden of Eden, there's, there's gold and there's precious stones. And then the tabernacle and the temple are furnished with gold and, and, and precious stones. And then the, the temple even was, was decorated with, with images and pictures and carvings of fruit and flowers. The, the, the whole motif of the temple was a garden. Now, Adam and Eve had been evicted from the garden. They were created to live forever. They were created to be in relationship with God in the dwelling place of God, which is the garden of Eden. But then Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden. They were kicked out. And remember in Genesis chapter three, we're told that that God drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim, like like a powerful angel and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they, they couldn't get back into the Garden of Eden. They couldn't get back into the place of God's presence. And then the tabernacle and the temple were these, were these sort of miniature symbolic Edens that, that symbolized the very presence of God. But the, the tabernacle, the temple were encased in walls, curtains. And veils, and you, you, you couldn't just walk in there, just like Adam and Eve couldn't walk back into the Garden of Eden. And then you have this whole sacrificial system set up, right? That's why in the book of Leviticus, you have all of these rules about offering animals for this reason or that reason. And the, the person would come to the tabernacle or to the temple and say, what's about to happen to this animal is what should happen to me because of my sin. And then the animal is killed. And then they can go in. But when Jesus dies on the cross, when he suffers and dies, that curtain is torn. And woven into that curtain, we're told in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 14, that he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen, and he worked cherubim in it. The, The curtain that that blocked the way into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, is guarded by the same thing. It's it's a curtain with a cherubim on it. Just like Adam and Eve were kept out of the Garden of Eden by a cherubim. Beloved ones, this, this curtain that's 60 feet in the air, ripped from top to bottom. It is an incredible miracle. And, and what is being communicated here is that Jesus has been sacrificed. And that what used to separate us from God, our sin, no longer needs to separate us. Because Jesus has died in our place. And then, sort of in staccato fashion, 
Matthew highlights all of these miracles that take place. So, so the first one is this, that he has opened a way into God's presence. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Secondly, that he has defeated death. Look with me at verse 52. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. Now, we got to make sure that we read this carefully. He's describing, this is a bit of a spoiler alert here. What he's describing here, he says, this happened after the resurrection. That after Jesus' tomb was opened and Jesus was resurrected, that these other Old Testament saints, their tombs were opened and they were resurrected as well. So, not only has Jesus opened the way into God's presence, but he has also defeated death because to be out of God's presence is death. That God is the author of life. And so when we cut ourselves off from God and choose to sin, the natural result is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, his free gift is eternal life. And so when those other people were resurrected, after Jesus was resurrected, Jesus is saying, I have conquered death. That death is not something that we need to fear because Jesus has conquered it. And then lastly, he is drawing people to himself. Let's go back to the other slide. He's drawing people to himself. Verse 54 When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, this was the son of God. As we've been going through the book of Genesis, we've looked at Noah and Noah's descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And how we're told in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 10 that all, all human population descends from these three brothers. And what we see here is we have the centurion. He's a Roman. He's European. He is from the, from the land of Japheth. We've already been introduced to Simon who's from Cyrene, from Africa, from the land of Ham. And then... Verses uh, uh, 55 and 56 remind us about the women who were there, descendants of Shem. And so all of the, all of the, all of the, the different clans, all of the different tribes are all represented there at the foot of the cross. Jesus, who has torn the curtain, has opened the way to God, has defeated death, and is drawing people to himself. People who look at the Savior and say, truly this was the Son of God. So we began by looking at Adam and Jesus, created creator, image of God, image of God. A man who tried to become God, God became a man yielded to temptation, withstood temptation, and both of them died. But as, we, as we've studied through Matthew chapter 27, we see in, uh, several other surprising parallels. We see nakedness because of Adam's sin, and then Jesus and his nakedness because of our sin. Adam, who blames his bride, remember? He says, God, it was the woman who made me do it. 
Jesus takes the blame for his bride, the church. It was Adam who brought the curse and who brought thorns, but it was Jesus who became a curse and wore the crown of thorns. It was Adam who was cast out of God's presence, which was guarded by a cherubim. And it, but it was Jesus who opened the way to God's presence as the curtain was torn. And it was Adam who caused all the living to die. And it was Jesus who caused the dead to live. And he is drawing people to himself. And maybe he is drawing you to himself today. Maybe you came here because someone gave you an invitation or your friend keeps bugging you or your parents keep bugging you or your, your family member keeps bugging you and you, you're, you're just here, you're just paying your dues, taking your time. But God has been, God's been actually speaking to you. He's calling you to himself. And those things that you're ashamed of, those things that you've said, those things that you've thought, those things that you've done, you don't, you don't know how to, how to deal with those things that are continually on your mind. You feel a sense of guilt. You feel a sense of shame. Jesus died for you. And that guilt and that shame that you feel is, 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 is not to cause you to look deeper and deeper inside of yourself, but to look up to God and to seek forgiveness and to be rightly related to him. And so he is drawing you. And becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is a decision that you can make today. It's a, it's a decision that that is very, very simple. It's not easy. Most simple things in life actually aren't easy. It's simple, but it's very hard. The first is this, to admit that you're a sinner. That's very simple, but that's very hard. And we want to overcomplicate that. We want to blame, like Adam, we want to blame other people for this and that, my parents, my upbringing, and all culture and society. And, but to simply admit that you're a sinner, admit that you have sinned against a holy God. And the second is to believe that Jesus died for you. To believe that Jesus came and not only fulfilled what Adam couldn't fulfill, but also fulfilled what you and I couldn't fulfill. He lived the life that none of us could live, and yet he died the death that all of us deserve to die on the cross. See, it's very simple. And then the last thing, so you admit that you're a sinner, you believe that Jesus died for you, and then the last one is to commit to follow him. To, to surrender your life to him. You've had enough of doing things your way. Let's do it the way that God has originally intended for you to do it. And so you can make that decision today. I'd be glad to talk with you after uh, the service. Or you can talk with the person that kept bugging you to invite you to come here uh, today. And you can, you can allow God to draw you to himself today.